Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. I remember it being a safe town. Wyoming felt comfortable to me. I didn't need parental supervision. I remember walking the streets and feeling safe, playing outside until the streetlights went out. I remember walking down to the stores and never fearing anything. I could go to the roller rink, I could go to the movie theaters, I could go pretty much anywhere I wanted without having to have my parents constantly monitor me and my friends. And it was that way until the day that Penny and Renee were abducted. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Wollner. This is Episode 9 of A Better Search for Barbara. In this episode, we're going to learn about person of interest Frank J. De La Pena. De La Pena was working in Williston when Barbara went missing, but he left town three weeks later and then immediately murdered two young girls in Wyoming. He was quickly apprehended, but then, like Stacy Werder, he hung himself in jail. He also left a suicide note, which I have obtained a copy of. But before we get into Frank de la Pena, a couple of other things to note. Last time I told you the Cotton family is organizing an event to celebrate Barb's life. This will take place on April 11, 2021, the 40th anniversary of Barbara's disappearance. I did get one email from a very concerned listener in Finland asking for clarity on this. In a nutshell, how can you have a gathering during a pandemic? Well, I do want to make clear that from what I can see, this is a COVID-safe outdoor event. It will take place in Recreation Park in Williston on April 11, between the hours of 2 p.m. and 6 p.m. In my case, I will be fully vaccinated for COVID by April 11, and I'll be honest, I wouldn't be going at all otherwise. I will also be bringing my mask, practicing the updated social distancing guidelines. In fact, for me, this will be the first type of any kind of gathering I'll be attending in over a year, and I assume the same can be said for many others who might attend. I'm looking forward to celebrating Barbara's life in Williston on April 11th in a safe manner. I've been told that people are traveling from as far as the state of Florida to pay tribute to Barbara Louise Cotton. Another thing I want to mention is that I have received some interesting new leads, three big ones, actually. One of these leads is about Frank de la Pena, and I'll tell you more about that later in this episode. 
Another lead I have is about someone who knew Stacy Werder at the time of his death, I think. I'm in the process of tracking down this person. This is exciting for us because so far we have not spoken to anyone who knew Stacy or was around him at that time. I'll be honest, I'm not sure the person I'm looking for is even still alive, but at least I have something to go on. The other big lead I have I'm going to hold on to just a little bit longer for various reasons, but I might tell you all about it in the next episode. With that, let's learn more about Frank J. De La Pena. A lot of people have been helping out lately, and I'd like to thank a few of them right now. As always, many thanks to private investigator Carrie Abbey. I'd also like to thank an extended member of the Cotton family, Lisa Jo Sheely, for her great assistance in compiling news articles about Frank de la Pena all in one place, saving me all kinds of time. Thank you, Lisa Jo. We also got some help from Ed Sturgeon, who took some photos of a house in Denver, a place that Frank de la Pena had listed as a previous address. And, as you will see, there are others who helped out with this episode. Thank you, everyone. Thursday, May 7th, 1981, just 26 days since Barbara Cotton was last seen alive. It's high noon in Riverton, Wyoming, when a 21-year-old woman named Trisha pulls into the parking lot of the grocery store Safeway on North Federal Boulevard. Maybe, as she heads towards the Safeway entrance, she zips up her jacket or pulls up her collar. It's unusually cool, just 50 degrees. Inside the store is a man, a man about 30 years of age. He's got dark curly hair and a round face. He's about 5 foot 6 inches tall, maybe 160 pounds, and looks Latino, maybe Mexican. He's wearing a dark leisure suit and an English touring cap, the kind that buttons down on the front, on the brim. On the lapel of his jacket is a John Lennon pin. He's wearing a cream-colored shirt with pictures of women on it. The women are all kneeling. The man approaches Trisha. He says, Hey, I have an Alaskan Malamute puppy I need to give to a good home because I'm being transferred to South America. You can have it for free if you want. The young woman is interested. I'll wait for you in the parking lot. The woman agrees and the stranger leaves Trisha to finish her grocery shopping. (laughs) 
A few minutes later, she exits Safeway with her shopping cart and finds the man waiting for her outside. Can I show you that puppy now? Let me put my groceries in my car first, she tells him. The man watches as Trisha puts her bags in the trunk of her car. They walk up to a white van. It's a Ford, maybe 1973, with windows and a side door. It's pulling a camper trailer, also white. The van has a North Dakota license plate on it, ANL 711. The puppy's inside the camper. Come on in, he says. We might have to search for him. He's probably hiding. The girl takes another look at the man, his curly hair, the leisure suit, the John Lennon pin. The world is still mourning John Lennon. He was assassinated just five months earlier in New York. The man opens the door to the camper, but no puppy shows itself. Will you help me look for him? He says. Perhaps it's just a gut feeling, perhaps instinct, but the woman declines to enter the camper. Perhaps, she says, can't you just bring him outside so I can see him? You know, maybe he's in the van, the man says. He shuts the door to the camper and opens the van's side door. Come on in. The young woman considers the situation, a free puppy. But she stands her ground. The man asks her again and again and again to help him find the little dog. Come on in. Trisha backs away. Something's not right. She returns to her car, gets inside, and who knows, maybe she even locks her doors. She starts up her car and shifts it into reverse. But before she can back out of the parking stall, the man has moved his van and trailer. He's parked it right behind her, boxing her in. She can't leave. She can't get out. What are you doing, she says, maybe through a cracked window. A conversation takes place. The girl agrees to let the man follow her home. Maybe how else to get him to move his big rig so she can leave, but this wise young woman has no intention of letting this stranger follow her to her house. The man moves his big rig out of the way and then follows Trisha as she drives her car through the parking lot and stops at the exit along Federal Boulevard. Federal Boulevard is five lanes in total, two lanes in each direction and a center turning lane. The girl looks left and then right as traffic approaches from both directions. Perhaps she takes a quick peek in the rearview mirror and sees this curly-haired stranger observing her from the white van. Perhaps she doesn't turn on her turn signal at all. Or maybe she does. Maybe she signals that she's going to turn right. Trisha passes on one or two opportunities to safely pull into the boulevard. She waits, waits for that perfect, life-saving opportunity, and then... jets across three lanes in front of heavy traffic and speeds north. 
leaving the man in the heavy and clumsy rig stuck, waiting for an opening. The next time Trisha will see this man's face will be in a nine-picture photo lineup shown to her by police. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Five days earlier, Williston, North Dakota. It's May 2nd, a Saturday, three weeks since Barbara Cotton was last seen. In Williston, it's a warm day in spring. Afternoon temperatures hover around 75 degrees. There's no rain in sight. It's a good day to read the newspaper. One article that day informs the reader that it's now been three weeks since President Reagan was released from the hospital. He's recovering perfectly from his gunshot wound. True to his character, the president holds a positive demeanor and downplays the whole injury. His concerns that week lie elsewhere with bigger things. In fact, he's quoted in the newspaper that day as saying he is horrified. Decades before social media, long before the term fake news will become a household phrase, almost 40 years before fact-checking, logic, truth, and science will be simply tossed aside like garbage, just so that every lazy charred American might feel entitled to embrace whatever ludicrous version of reality they so choose, that time-honored president of the United States had this to say. I'm horrified today that some people insist the Holocaust was invented, that it never happened, that there weren't six million people whose lives were taken cruelly and needlessly in this era, and that all of this is propaganda. I remember April 45. I remember seeing the first film that came in when the war was still on, that our troops had come across the first camps and had entered those camps. And you saw the horror that they saw. But the president's eerie glimpse of the future of his nation was not front-page news on that Saturday. The top headline in all of North Dakota was a story out of Williston, and it had nothing to do with Barbara Louise Cotton. One headline that day read, Eight Die in Helicopter Crash. Williston, AP. Authorities Saturday removed the bodies of eight persons who died Friday night in a fiery helicopter crash into the side of a ravine. The victims were members of a seismological crew engaged in oil exploration in the Williston Basin. Also on that Saturday in Williston, a curly-haired man named Frank De La Pena was released from Mercy Hospital. He was complaining of a terrible pain in his head, he thought, brought on by being under all kinds of pressure. 
He also reportedly got into some kind of trouble with his co-workers at his place of employment. After he was released from the hospital, Delapena spoke with his shift supervisor, a man named Ron Bethay. Bethay told him he was fired. He'd have to let him go until he could get his head straightened out. Frank Delapena spent the next three days in Williston. He was staying at the KOA campground just north of town in Site B-27. On Tuesday, May 5th, he leaves Williston and drives his rig to Thermopolis, Wyoming, an eight-hour drive. In Thermopolis, he stays at a trailer campground for two nights. On the second day, he drives 30 miles northeast to a town named Worland and invites some friends and former co-workers to come party with him at his trailer in Thermopolis. At about 12.30 in the morning, a Worland police officer runs Delapena's North Dakota license plate, ANL-711. It comes back as being owned by Frank J. Delapena. Four and a half hours later, he is observed in nearby Shoshone, Wyoming, attempting to siphon gas from vehicles outside of a motel. Seven hours later, he's 22 miles away in Riverton, Wyoming, where he approaches the 21-year-old Trisha at Safeway. Trisha speeds away to safety. Just two hours later, Delapena is in Lander, Wyoming. In Lander, another 21-year-old girl named Diana Miller is working at a discount store. In walks Frank Delapena. He walks around the store for a bit before approaching her. In an interview with a reporter, she will later be quoted as saying, He didn't really do anything that strange, but he just gave me the creeps. I had a feeling about him. He asked me if I knew anyone who wanted a dog. He said it was out in his trailer. I don't even think he had a dog in the trailer. He couldn't answer any direct questions about the dog. When Diana Miller leaves work a few minutes later, Frank de la Pena is waiting for her outside. He's driving a white van, pulling a white camper. He asks, do you want to come into my trailer and see my puppy? Diana Miller refuses and leaves. Around the same time, an 18-year-old girl is approached by de la Pena outside of the 7-Eleven. Their conversation is cut short when two of the girl's male friends approach her to talk. De La Pena hits the road and drives an hour southeast on 278 to the town of Jeffrey City. At 4 p.m. he sees an 18-year-old boy walking. He asks the young man if he needs a ride, and the boy declines. The first reported sighting of Frank De La Pena in Rawlings, Wyoming, is at 6 p.m. He's parked at a mini-mart on Spruce Street. Thirty minutes later, at the corner of 6th Street and Maple, De La Pena approaches a 13-year-old girl. He has a puppy he wants to give away. Come into my trailer and look at him, he says. The girl refuses, but she will remember his clothing, his curly hair, the John Lennon pin. Ten minutes later, at the corner of 4th and Cedar, right downtown in broad daylight, another 13-year-old girl is approached by a man with a white van and a trailer. He's got a puppy he wants to show her. He refuses to bring the puppy out, says she's got to come inside the trailer. The girl refuses, but she will remember the John Lennon pin, the leisure suit. Frank De La Pena starts up his van and drives a couple of blocks west and one block north until he finally parks outside of the Daily Times newspaper at the intersection of 6th Street and West Buffalo. He's parked right across the street from Byright Drugstore. A few minutes earlier, 9-year-old Penny Ray Swanson and 12-year-old Renee Davidson had just left their homes near 7th and Cedar to walk two blocks to Byright Drug. They will never return home, 
and their bodies will be found the very next morning. Um, I am semi-retired, 52 years old, and just kind of doing what I can um, to, in my spare time, to do my small part, the cold case and missing persons advocate. Um, my interest in it started at a very young age, um, when I was 12 years old, which I, we will be discussing here shortly. So, This is Andre Johnson, although she goes by the name Andy. She works within the true crime community on social media, attempting to get as much exposure as possible for lesser-known cases, cases not unlike Barbara's. It only takes that one person, as you know, that one person who hears something and goes, wait a minute, I remember that's not true, or, you know, or has some piece of information that could help, you know, and there's so many family members that just, fortunately for the case, you know, that we're going to discuss, um, not necessarily Barbara, of course, but they knew who did it, and they, they found them right away. And so uh, hopefully, you know, their family members were able to move on and, and grieve and and not wonder for the rest of their lives, you know, as, as I've been listening to the podcast, you know, and the family members of Barbara, it just breaks my heart. Andy lives in Idaho today, but in May of 1981, she lived in Rawlings, Wyoming. I was 12 years old. I was in seventh grade, um, almost 13. And um, my classmate, Penny uh, Ray Swanson, she was 12 as well. And um, her friend, Renee Rochelle Davidson, who was nine, um, who happened to be the sister of one of our mutual classmates, uh, Mike Davidson, um, were kidnapped. And it's, as I was reading the documents, it's questionable whether they were sexually assaulted, but they were kidnapped and murdered um, in May of 1981 from outside of a drugstore that we all used to frequent. Can you remember the first time you heard something happened? So I would have found out probably the next day that they were missing. Um, they weren't sure. And I remember just, you know, worried about, oh, you know, they're probably cold. I had no concept, you know, of the evil that lurks kind of thing. You know, I had not, I never experienced anything. So I just remember worrying, you know, even though it was May, it's still fairly chilly in, in Wyoming. Um, during that time, and I was very concerned that they would be cold if they were lost somewhere. You know, that was my, my concept of it. By Monday morning, the bodies had been found, but the killer was still on the loose. When the children of Rawlins came to school that morning, an assembly had been organized. We had counselors come in, uh, school counselors. Um, they, they did kind of a huge, in the auditorium, talk with us, and then they, they talked with us in smaller groups and, you know, did, did the entire stranger danger, you know, don't get into cars with strangers, go straight home after school, don't talk to strangers. And I remember just being absolutely terrified of pretty much every adult that I was around for just, you know, could you have done it? Could you, you know, and especially male, obviously, you know, because I hadn't, I didn't have any information on the suspect and I'm not even sure that they did at that time, but um, it definitely instilled, you know, I pretty much let me in on an adult secret. At least that's how it felt was that the boogeyman was real and I needed to be aware and alert at all times. 
From that moment on, Andy's life, and certainly the lives of the other kids in Rollins, changed completely. I went from being a latchkey kid, walking down to the store. You know, I had complete freedom from, you know, 3.30 out of school till about 5.30 when my parents got home. As long as I was home, I wasn't, you know, the street lights. as soon as they got dark, we were inside, you know, kind of thing. And from that moment on, I was driven to and from school. I would have to go to uh, my mother's place of business down at the bank and wait for her to um, get off work. And then we would go home. I wasn't allowed to be at home anymore. While Andy's parents were clear with her that it was because of the murders that she had lost freedom after school, they never told her any real details. And this lack of information or understanding drove Andy to seek answers about the adult world all on her own. You know, I was going to the library in Rollins and, you know, renting out any true crime books I could get a hold of. I read In Cold Blood and and just trying to, you know, try to understand or to, to try to get a comprehension of the boogeyman that was out there and what I could do to prepare and, you know, and, and um, that just kind of evolved into, you know, where we're at now. And before, I should mention that before you agreed to speak with me, this all happened very quickly, but... You did bring up something that's important about you were concerned about the respect for the family, um, you know, Penny and Renee. I agree, but, you know, I agreed with you, obviously. You know, we're, I'm, here, I'm, I'm here trying to find out what happened to Barbara Cotton. And at the same time that we don't, I don't want to just, just skip over, you know, these two girls lost their lives, 9 and 12 years old. I don't also want to focus on it too much if, you think it's going to upset the families, you know, we're not going to dive into their whole lives or anything, but I, I don't feel like we've said enough about them either. How, how are you feeling about this? I, and I'm kind of cautious as well. I don't, you know, this happened 40 years ago and they, their bodies were recovered and um, they, I hope that they have grieved and moved on um, and done well. I, I would hate to be, you know, the cause of anything bringing it up. Um, I think that in the context of the conversation that we are having, I think we're being respectful um, and kind. And hopefully, you know, Penny was absolutely, um, you know, just adorable. She was kind of kind of shy but funny. And Renee, um, the, the only thing that I really remember about Renee was she looked so much like her older brother, Mike. Um, she played music, um, and you know they were they were beautiful twelve and nine year old young girls who had their entire life ahead of them, and their families missed out, and you know on everything. And I just I wish and hope for for all of them, you know, peace and and to know that there are people out there that remember them fondly, and then that still care and remember and honor them. Um, you know, not just for what happened to them, but also what they were like prior to what happened. One thing Andy and I talked about is something that perhaps you might be wondering about. It's a little surreal to me, myself, a little weird. You have likely noticed a the theme of dogs in this podcast. I've been playing the sound of a barking dog, for example, and way back in episode four, private investigator Carrie Abby and I discussed if a guy with a dog might have lured Barbara into a bad situation. And of course, we have Diane Latticer's recollection, too. The last people she remembers Barbara being with was someone who wanted to take their dog to the vet. Dogs, dogs, and dogs. 
I guess I just want to be clear and point out that all that stuff about dogs seeped into this podcast and into my writing before I had ever heard the name Frank J. De La Pena. I learned his name at the same time you did from our interview with Detective Hendricks at the Williston Police Department. And so if you find it odd, I'm kind of with you. I find it surreal and even a little bit creepy that Frank De La Pena used the pretense of a free puppy as a means to lure his intended victims. Yeah, in Riverton, Lander, and I believe Jeffrey City, he was trying to lure people. And they also stated that that was how he lured both Penny and Renee, was that he had a Siberian Husky puppy that he was trying to give away because he was moving, moving, the ruse was he was moving out of country or something, you know, and that's something that, and especially, um, you know, Barbara seemed a little more worldly, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way whatsoever, just a little more... Um, streetwise, maybe? Streetwise, yes, that's probably the, the appropriate term, than, um, you know, I would say Penny and Renee were um, at, you know, 12 and 9, for sure. Um, but it sounded like in, specifically, the Riverton attempted abduction that, you know, this woman was, I believe, 21, and, you know, she went and was looking and trying to hear and see the puppy, you know, and I think that most people, um, you know, are, are good hearted. And if, you know, there's a puppy that needs a home or, you know, I'm, I'm one, I rescue animals all the time. You know, I, I can see how that would be, especially if Barbara was very fond of animals and it sounded like she was, she was a very caring, um, loving um, person. It sounds like that would be something you know, it's it's kind of it is kind of creepy that up pops this method of operandis. Andy has never before spoken out publicly about the homicides in Rollins. I asked her why she agreed to talk to us now. I'm very very um, cautious and particular about you know the content that I do listen to and the people that I interact with, um, and this is the first time that I've spoken publicly about you know, my situation, I, I definitely wanted to make sure that you were one of those people that, you know, it was about the victims and helping the victim's family. And I could hear it in your voice. And as I listened to the content, but as I listened to the the interview with the detectives, the cold case detectives, um, I could hear your excitement at wanting to get those questions out. And, um, you know, and also the frustration at getting kind of a long winding response that kind of went nowhere and you know and you were so polite and you were so respectful Adam you know I'm sorry for being annoying but you know and I could hear that angst in your voice like I'm trying to get these answers and you know and, and you weren't even on things that you know obviously they may or may not be able to share I could I could sense the frustration and that's an opportunity that a lot of of people in your position do not get you know there's so many that don't you know, so many cold case detectives that will not speak with, you know, with the media or any way, shape or form. So you were being extremely polite, very respectful. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't know um, the female detective. Um, she seemed to talk quite a bit and kind of talked around in a circle. So, you know, and maybe that was just her way of, of not answering the question. It was just a little confusing, not on your end, but, but, had I been in a situation like that, trying to get a question answered or, or just a, Hey, I can't answer that, you know, just a straightforward, it would have probably, you had, you have a lot more patience than I, I will just state it that way. 
I do appreciate, and I said it earlier, but I do appreciate the work that you do um, on behalf of, you know, I'm fortunate in my lifetime to have never had this happen to my children or to, you know, a family member. And, um, but being close enough as I was, um, you know, I, I do appreciate and respect um, you for that. You listen to this podcast in a way probably nobody else before you has. And, and how did you con- experience it? I chronologically just kept thinking, okay, that's, you know, whatever's happening with Barbara right now, it's coming. It's only, you know, three weeks, two weeks, you know, and listening to how it was investigated or treated um, versus how, I mean, I, this may be wrong of me, but I saw, you know, through the information that I had found and gleaned on Penny and Renee's case and how quickly law enforcement responded. And there was absolutely, you know, all hands on deck searching into the night. Um, and the difference for Barbara, it just kind of broke my heart a little bit that, you know, Barbara was just as deserving of the same investigation regardless of whether she was older or chose you know she had a boyfriend or you know even if she was sexually active or you know drank or did whatever she was just as deserving i looked at it through those lenses and it was it was heartbreaking Might Frank de la Pena be responsible for Barbara Cotton's disappearance? It certainly seems possible. Let's look closer at that now. First of all, how did de la Pena get apprehended? When de la Pena attempted to abduct a 13-year-old girl earlier in the evening, a man named Albert had overheard part of the conversation. He did something else, too. He noted the North Dakota license plate number. Although he ultimately got one letter wrong, it was enough to later trace the van and trailer back to Frank de la Pena. Based on all the witness testimony from other women who de la Pena tried to abduct, we have a pretty clear picture of how he probably lured the girls into his camper. Witnesses will later state that they saw de la Pena's van and trailer parked 20 miles away at 8 p.m. that night. He was parked at a campground away from other vehicles. He stayed there about two hours and then left. He was next seen near the junction of I-80 and Highway 130, seven miles east of the campground, and after that, on a gravel road outside of Elk Mountain, Wyoming. The next morning, the bodies of Shelley and Renee were found in that area, near Wagon Hound Exit. Delapena changed his license plate on his vehicle and drove to a KOA campground in Garden City. Five days later, on May 12th, Dela Pena went looking for a new job. He drove to Lyman, Colorado, and spoke with a foreman at the same company he got fired from in Williston. The foreman was staying at the preferred motel in Lyman when Dela Pena knocked on his door and said he was looking for work. This foreman later wrote a statement for the police. I'd like to read that for you now, but before I do, I'd like to thank someone who helped me get these documents in the first place. 
Her name is Emily Hirsch, and she lives in Denver. When I asked the Facebook group if there was anyone near Denver that might want to help out a little bit, Emily reached out to me right away via email. And so we have her to thank for these documents and all this new information. She drove 180 miles on our behalf to the town of Hugo, Colorado, to inspect and take pictures of the police file about the apprehension and suicide of Frank de la Pena. When I called her the next day to thank her, I also asked why she decided to help us out. I've listened to your podcast from the start. I've listened to all the seasons and just really appreciate the way you tell stories and um, the people you kind of advocate for, the stories you choose. And um, so, I don't know. I mean, it's I, I love researching. I love digging into things. And, um, you know, it's not often an opportunity comes up where I can be helpful and do something. Like I said, I need more adventure in my life these days. So this was my chance. <laughs> so tell us about uh, real quick about your day. I mean, you drove out there. It's a little town, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a little town. Um, I met with uh, the undersheriff, Gordon Nall, um, who was, no, he was very accommodating, kind of sent me up in a conference room with the file. Um, so I just kind of took my time and took pictures of everything. Emily told me that one thing that was a little weird was to be holding Frank de la Pena's original suicide note in her hand. A little creepy. Um, those are the originals, yeah. Yeah, so that was probably the creepiest thing, but no, it was just kind of amazing all the little bits and pieces that they had saved and to think about, you know, all the cases they've ever done, how much paperwork there must be, random receipts and notes and all you know, phone messages. <laughs> Did you say that the building you went to was not the same place where he it used to be the police station where he killed himself? Or That's right. Yeah, they. I guess they built that building. It sounded like in the early 90s and they moved kind of all the, the municipal stuff um, over to that new building. All right. Well, again, thank you so much and thank you for listening. And I hope maybe I get to meet you someday. If... That would be awesome. Again, many thanks to Emily Hirsch. Now that you understand how I got that document, I'd like to read the statement that the foreman for Cephal wrote for the police. There is something in this statement that is very interesting. It might mean nothing in regards to Barbara, or it might mean absolutely everything. Here we go. About 6.30 p.m., Frank Delapeno came to my office to apply for a job. We sat and talked for maybe an hour and a half. I told him we were full up, but he persisted. He told me he needed the money to make payments on a trailer and his motorcycle. And here is the interesting part that I think we should pay special attention to. He also told me of this terrible pressure he was experiencing on his head when he was working up in Williston, caused by excessive worrying. He felt he was being pressured and he couldn't handle it, and so he sought help through a neurologist and a psychologist with two days under observation. He approached his crew boss in Williston and was told that he would have to be laid off until he could come out of his depression. I'll read that part for you one more time. He also told me of this terrible pressure he was experiencing on his head when he was working up in Williston caused from excessive worrying. He felt he was being pressured and he couldn't handle it, and so he sought help through a neurologist and a psychologist with two days under observation.
He bugged me to call his former crew boss to get a background check on himself. When I did, I was instructed to get him out of the office and call back, for I may be in direct danger, but to not let Delapena leave town. So I told him to go get a bite to eat and to come back, and that I needed to get some permits, and he agreed. This crew boss then called back to North Dakota and discovered that Delapena was wanted for the murders in Rollins. He then called the police locally, and they set up a trap, and Delapena was arrested. I don't know about you, but I'm wondering what Frank J. Delapena was worrying about in Williston some two and a half weeks after Barbara was last seen alive. This, to me now, after reading that report, it seems like he was on some sort of, uh, kind of how you verbalized it, you know. Um, I mean, he's just going, he's just sort of frantically trying to abduct people almost. Yeah, like compelled, there's this level of escalation. So whatever whatever was going on was just compelling him to just continue to try, continue to try. Some random thoughts and questions by me before we talk about Frank De La Pena's suicide note. I'm in the middle of a windstorm in North Dakota. If you hear noise in the background, it's just my house falling over. Again, I wonder if Stacy Werder and Frank De La Pena might have known each other. Were they responsible together somehow for whatever happened to Barbara? Did Frank and Stacy perhaps go to Scobie, Montana? Did Barbara go with them? And if so, did she go willingly? If they perhaps killed Barbara, did Stacy panic and stay in Montana while Frank returned to Williston? Is that why Frank De La Pena's mental health deteriorated? Was he worrying about getting caught or maybe worrying that he had recently found murder irresistible and that he had to do it again? If Stacy knew Frank De La Pena, did he read about him in the newspaper? The murders in Wyoming? His arrest? His suicide? Did they have a suicide pact? Did they have a conversation about what to do if they ever got caught? Hang yourself in jail. Another question I have is this. Was Louise ever shown photographs of the interior of Frank De La Pena's van and trailer? Maybe with the hopes of her spotting something she recognized as belonging to Barbara. A jacket, perhaps, or other clothing. If not, do those photographs still exist? And can Kathy and other siblings see them today? I just sent a text message to Kathy and asked her if she'd ever seen such photographs, but she said no. In fact, she'd never really heard about Frank De La Pena until recently. From what I have seen and read, the Wyoming State Lab processed De La Pena's trailer and van. Do they still have that evidence? Fibers? Hair? Blood? Is there anything in that evidence that leads us back to Barbara Cotton? And here is one more thing I want to say before we talk about a suicide note. This is a message to someone listening. To the person who claims to have heard a medical professional in Williston in 1981 potentially linking Frank de la Pena to Barbara's disappearance, or if linking is too strong a word, speculating or theorizing or believing that Frank de la Pena was responsible for what happened to Barbara, your proxy has told me that you will never go on the record about this. I assume your decision is based on principle. I do respect adhering to our principles, and I also understand that you might not want to be part of a story or a podcast. 
But for the love of our daughters, please go to the police with this information. If your refusal to speak up for 40 years now, actually, has to do with professional etiquette, I would submit to you that the person who potentially broke etiquette is the person that told you this information in the first place. And as we both know, that person cannot be shunned or blamed or even confronted anymore. And I will further submit that that person may have already gone to the police. For all we know, the Williston Police Department have a report on this information. But what if they don't? Does the importance of this principle really supersede the importance of an opportunity for Barbara's family to get some closure? I guess you know what my answer is to that question, and I suspect that what I think or the community of Williston thinks is of little interest to you, but again, please consider going to the police. Okay, so you want to know about Frank De La Pena's suicide note? This is how I'm going to go about it. Things have been moving really quickly lately, and so when I got the police file this week, when I saw the suicide note, I immediately sent it to a voice actor, thinking that we would all get to listen to it on this podcast. I also shared the suicide note with Andy Johnson, who we just heard from in this episode, Penny and Renee's schoolmate in Wyoming. As I said, things have been moving really quickly, but after I had some time to think about it, I became less and less and less confident that Dakota Spotlight should be some kind of platform for Frank De La Pena's suicide note. I'm going to tell you, of course, what he said more or less, but I asked Andy Johnson to help me explain to all of you why I've decided not to let you hear his suicide note verbatim. Hello? Hey, Andy, it's James. So I want to explain something for everyone listening. This is the second time I'm interviewing you. The first time was before I got a hold of all those documents down in Colorado. And since then, just this week, I got those documents. I sent those to you. Was that yesterday or the day before? Yesterday. Okay. And today's Monday, the 29th of March. I'm going to put this episode out in a couple hours. And, you know, I've created this anticipation, at least on the Facebook group, that I have gotten a hold of Frank De La Pena's uh, suicide note. And the more I thought about it, the less confident I felt that I want to share this with people. And you have now, I assume, seen or maybe gone through most of these documents or some of them. And I thought you could help me explain to the listeners why I may be backing out on my, I never promised them the full uh, suicide note, but it's the whole thing is just getting more and more disturbing and sad for me. And um, I thought maybe we could talk about that. How does that sound? Absolutely. Um, my first reaction is, you know, I, I do understand the interest in true crime. I think most of us want to understand the why these predators offend. Unfortunately, men like Della Pena are manipulative, sociopaths, incapable of empathy for their victims. They'll do anything for self-preservation and to keep control of the narrative. And I do believe after reading the note, that that was what he was trying to con trying to do was control the narrative either with the media or to garner attention somehow. Even to forty years later, he's trying yeah. to control my podcast. Really, if I read that thing, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. I mean, it is completely yeah. manipulative. I mean, and he's obviously guilty. There's so many witnesses, and he's claiming, you know, I guess we'll just tell everyone he's claiming that he's innocent and. He's going to be set up, and because he's innocent, he's going to kill himself. It's just absurdity. 
there was an overwhelming amount of evidence of his guilt obtained by law enforcement, and they they retained a very strong chain of custody. They made sure it was intact. I just want to kind of say to your listeners that I hope that when when we're all consuming true crime content, we all need to remember that there are victims, families, friends, loved ones left behind who need respect, consideration, and compassion. And my whole reason for, you know, even speaking to you, I was very hesitant in the beginning just because I don't want to cause any pain or um, to, to Penny and Renee's families or much less, you know, stumble and, and, and misstep or say something wrong that would, would upset or hurt Barbara's family or, or friends, you know. Um, these are real people who struggle, you know, every day, whether, you know, their, their loved one is missing or has their, they have found their loved one who's been murdered, you know, it's not. And I understand the sensationalized sensationalism and, and actually, I don't even think your listeners are that, that way. They don't seem to be, they seem like a really great group, group of people that I've seen in the, in the Facebook group. My biggest fear is that, you know, Penny or Renee's family members or friends hear the reading of that suicide note and it brings back up, you know, I had a visceral reaction when I read it, you know, and well, even when you shared with me that you had it and what was in it, um, you know, I haven't had really a strong reaction until yesterday when, when you shared that information with me, being tangible proof that he, he existed and he was just as awful as I thought he was, but in different ways. You know, it's just really eye-opening to see how manipulative and uh, dangerous these people are, but they're also human. You know, there's there's a part of me that wants to know why, why, how did you get to where you are? And unfortunately, that suicide note doesn't contain any of that. There's no answers for me there. No, and I'll give you my perspective. I've always tried to figure out the why in previous seasons. Mm-hmm. And in this one, I'll be honest, this suicide note, and you know, poor listeners are, are wondering, well, what's in it? What's in it? I mean, this the suicide note in this case just made me angry. And the reason it made me angry is because he's obviously guilty. There's just, we have how many women he tried to abduct that day, witnesses, you know, and and he's claiming that he's innocent and he's going on this long-winded story about, it's very narcissistic, really. It's about... His travels in South America, um, Central America. He he always thought he'd write a book, um, and and he then he writes. I think what also sort of a, really annoyed me was that he writes these notes to the press and TV and Denver and things like that. Like he's talking about how he's being manipulated like a puppet, and I having this read there's nothing explosive in it. It's it's just his, you know, uh, proclamations of innocence. You know, nothing about Barbara Cotton or, or Williston, North Dakota. Nothing. There's nothing yeah. about Stacy Werder or other friends or anything that would be no. really a value for the Barbara Cotton story. Um, I guess we still don't know what happened to Barbara Cotton, but I feel like he could definitely be responsible for it. Like, you know, if Barbara was a victim of his and maybe the first victim, that might be what, um, when he went looking for that job, he told the foreman um, when he applied for the job that he'd had all this pressure in his head. Did you see that note? I, I did, and that he had he had seen a neurologist and a psychologist in the hospital. It would not surprise me yeah, um, if he was responsible or 
even had contact with the people who who were responsible for Barbara missing. I, you know, and that, I don't mean to be slanderous in any way, but given his his behavior, and he's in the area. Um, you know, I can see why law enforcement has him as one of the three suspects. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So, Andy, thank you so much again for helping us um, with the podcast and this episode. This episode has been the hardest one for me to deal with and to actually finish. I think it's just difficult. There's a lot of moving pieces, but I, we can't thank you enough for all of your all of your help. Well, and I just want to, in closing, thank you. But I also wanted to just say something to to Barbara Cotton's family and friends who are still looking don't give up. You know, there are, there are people out there who care and who, who are praying and, and wanting to help in any way they can to help for some sort of resolution. Um, you know, it is not a road that I would like to, to walk ever and just know that, that they are in my thoughts. And I really, truly hope that somehow with, with this podcast being out there, that someone will at least come forward and help them get some some resolution to find her at least. Andy Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, James Wollner. This season is dedicated to my daughters and to all daughters everywhere. Some music in this season, including the song you're listening to now, provided by North Dakota-born, former Wishick area resident and UND grad Isaac Turner of Kalamazoo, Michigan, and his seemingly infinite number of musical bands and projects. This band is named Wowza in Kalamazoo. We also heard a little from his bands Out and the Hollis Group. Search for Wowza, Out, and the Hollis Group on Bandcamp.com or see the links in the show notes. Thanks much, Isaac and friends. To learn more about Missing Kids, check out the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at missingkids.org. To contact me, shoot me an email at dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. If you're loving this season, please tell your friends in real life and on social media and give me a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. And why not come and join us at the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Season 5, A Better Search for Barbara. Be safe, stay warm, and see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.